You're listening to What the History, a podcast where two nerds talk about some awesome, crazy, random stuff you probably don't remember learning about, but you're going to now. Hey, nerds. Welcome back to another episode of What the History. Uh, Today, Sarah and I have something that is not (laughs) our usual fun jokey topics. Um, This actually came out of a discussion that I did with my own students about a resistance movement during uh, like the Nazi regime in Germany that I had actually never heard of. And I was super fascinated by it. So I mentioned it to Sarah and we decided we would do it. So today we're going to be talking about the White Rose or the White Rose Organization, which, like I said, was like a resistance group during the time of Nazi Germany in the 1940s. So definitely going to be uh, <laughs> not that funny. Not that funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're going to hear me pronounce German names very poorly. You're going to hear um, me use generic terms to avoid names most of the time. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's probably going to be some like shitting on Nazis, mm-hmm, rightfully mm-hmm. so. Uh, but this is definitely going to be a little bit more of a, a downer, you know, yeah. it's still important. I think um, we don't get to learn a lot about resistance movements during that time. I feel like that is very rarely comes up. Yeah. Um. So hopefully you can take something away from this and maybe we'll laugh and maybe not. So we'll see. <laughs> So yeah, I'm going to let Sarah take it away. She's going to bring us through the history and like the main players and what they were known for. And then I get to do the really fun aftermath of it. Not happy ending. Yes, not happy ending at all. We won the war. We'll just start with that. Just remember that we did win the war. Right. Yes, exactly. (laughs) It's just, you know. But um, in the meantime. (laughs) So the White Rose was a nonviolent intellectual resistance group during Nazi Germany It was led by a group of students who attended the University of Munich. And so most of them were in their early 20s because they're college students. So we're talking about like a youth movement. So just to give a little bit of context, all of this for them starts in 1942 Germany. So we're kind of in the middle of the Holocaust of the war. It's all very much taken off already. And there was a former member of the White Rose I don't think it's society. I think it's just the White Rose, but I always say the White Rose Society in my head. I think it is just the White Rose, but I've also heard the White Rose Organization, which is interesting too. So So there was a former member who described just what it was like to be German at the time. So, quote, the government, or rather the party, controlled everything. The news media, arms, police, the armed forces, the judiciary system, communications, travel, all levels of education from kindergarten to universities all cultural and religious institutions. Political indoctrination started at a very early age and continued by the means of the Hitler youth with the ultimate goal of complete mind control. Children were extorted in school to denounce even their own parents for derogatory marks about Hitler or Nazi ideology. So that's sort of the the landscape of how they're describing living at the time. Yeah. It's just like the scariest thing, I think, mm-hmm. as an educator. And like, I just, I, it's, Interesting because I have a hard time with obviously as a teacher, you need to like hold your opinions back, which is fine. Right. But like, I can't imagine being forced to teach such a level of indoctrination like that. Yeah. It's I just mind blowing. Like Nazis are one thing where you're allowed to kind you oh, yeah. of pretend to be neutral at least. No, no, no. Totally. Absolutely not. And like, 
the fortunate, well, actually unfortunate thing is this past year when I, because we actually are just finishing up our World War II or World Wars unit. Yeah. We talk a lot about the rise of fascism, right? And we talk about like, you know, why was Hitler able to not just have power, but get power from the public? And like, well, yeah. So like, this is the first year that... And it's not maybe it's not the first year, but this maybe this year just felt very different because, you know, we watch a lot of videos and we do a lot of discussions about like what fascism and nationalism looks like and what it sounds like. And a lot of it is like and I'm not being facetious and I'm not being like a fucking whatever liberal snowflake that you want to call me, but like make Germany great again, make Italy great again. Like those were legitimate things. So like it's hard to teach kids that without it being like. You know what I mean? It's just very yeah, complex. Yeah, sounding like you're skewing it. Right. But, but like, like there are true. always kids. Yes. And there are always kids that have this like like little glint in their eye. And mm-hmm. they're like, huh, that sounds mm. weirdly familiar. familiar. So I just can't imagine having the level of, I mean, we already have bullshit overhead in terms of like administration, what we're supposed to teach yeah. and whatever. But like, I can't fathom being like, okay, boys and girls, did anybody's mommy and daddy, you know, talk right. about Hitler in a bad way at dinner last night? And then like little, I don't know. Yeah. Little Otto is like, <laughs> yes, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. so uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's fair. So let's see. So in the summer of 1942, so Germany had started suffering like a series of losses in the war. And so the general public in Germany was kind of becoming more aware that this wasn't really going that well for them. There was a chance they could lose the war and that the world wasn't seeing them favorably. Like it was becoming very clear that they were kind of the bad guys in this. Even whether they agreed or not with it, it was just less of a we're we're winning, we're great, like whatever. Mm-hmm. And so at the time, um, that quote kind of mentioned it. There's this idea of the German youth movement. And this started in 1896. So it started before Hitler was doing his thing. But it, <laughs> it carried on through the beginning of the 1900s. And so it was just a general movement aimed at providing like space for kids to develop a healthy life. Right. So it was just generally like youth organizations things like we would think of the boy scouts or stuff like that Mm -hmm. um now it's old-fashioned germany right so they were very big into like kind of a nostalgia for a pristine state of things um like cultural traditions and then a strong emphasis actually on independent and non-conformist thinking but there's this idea of a youth movement that's just generally Kind of the period in time where Germany realizes kids are people, right? I feel like every culture has that time where they're like, (laughs) kids are people and we should develop them as people. So that's going on. And from there, I'm going to bring in a couple of our like main players in this. So there's a group of students at the University of Munich who come from similar backgrounds and kind of privileged backgrounds. So wealthy Mm -hmm. parents, educated parents. And two of the main ones are Hans and Sophie Scholl. So I'm going to look at most of this through the lens of them. We have the most information on them, and they're two of the, like, main people involved with the White Rose. Yeah. Um, And they are involved in some of these youth movements when they're younger. But by that time, the Nazi Party had youth organizations that kind of co-opted a lot of this youth movement, and they became synonymous. Mm -hmm. And so they had these nazi party youth organizations that were again similar to kind of what we think of as the boy scouts right. so it wasn't complete political 
all the time. They were doing like camping and life skills or whatever, but mm-hmm. they were doing it while also indoctrinating them about certain ideology. Mm-hmm. And so a number of the White Rose members, including um, Hans Scholl, had joined some of these organizations pretty enthusiastically as a kid. Yeah. Um, it was before, you know, really like the depths of the Holocaust had started, mm-hmm. but that's what they wanted to do. Um, yeah. Sophie Scholl was a member of a similar one that was designed for girls. Yes. And membership in some sort of like party youth organization became compulsory at some mm-hmm. point. Um, some of the White Rose members had actively refused to join, even as kids. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's not really known whether they refused or their parents refused, but it was something like every kid was supposed to be involved in some sort of youth organization. And those were becoming increasingly synonymous with like Nazi organizations. And it was becoming like expected to like, you know, you'd go play on the playground and it was like, oh, Sarah, did you join the Hitler youth? Like, you know what I mean? It was like kids were being pressured to do so. And there really wasn't much of an option. So, yeah. yeah. And then so in the 30s, they actually dissolve and illegalize most of these groups. So pretty early on, the official like party sanctioned ones go away. But what that does is make a bunch of people turn to more like underground localized organizations. Okay. And that is on sort of all sides, right? Like super Nazi youth are doing that. Resistant people that are more resistant are doing that. They're forming these underground groups for all different ideologies. Um, There's also... A whole other, like, I'm sure there could be a whole podcast on it, that a lot of the male-centered youth groups are secretly, like, gay clubs, basically. Mm, Okay. Yeah, Um, I've heard that. Yeah. And Hans Scholl is actually later very much believed to have been part of the kind of homosexual underground, I think I saw it called, right? Like, Right, right. Whatever group he's in, he's participating in some sort of homosexual behavior. Um, so that's, like I said, I could have like gone on a whole nother hour digging into that. But just as a note, basically, they're forming all these different underground sections of society that the youth are getting involved in. So there's kind of a precedent for kids being politically involved and, and forming opinions and things like that. Mm-hmm. Like being um, exposed to that. Yeah, exactly. So Hans and Sophie are... Our brother and sister, they're close in age, and they end up getting basically radicalized by a pamphlet they read. So this Catholic bishop puts out a pamphlet talking specifically about the Nazis' use of euthanasia Mm -hmm. um, and kind of the the religious viewpoint on that. So Hans and Sophie are Christians. They're not Jewish students, obviously. Yeah, I think Um, they were like Lutheran or something, which makes sense because a lot of Germans were. That's where Luther was, so... Sure, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm sorry. I'm no, such a I'm, fucking weirdo. Honestly, I said like, that so dismissively. You, like, yeah. everybody knows that. Like, what a tool. I'm so embarrassed. No, you're I'm fine. Just... I also know nothing. I'm like Catholic Christian. One has bread. I'm not sure. <laughs> Either way, Jesus is the son of God. That's all that matters. That's yeah, exactly. what they believe. <laughs> and so they kind of lean into this religious element. They end up meeting with a bunch of different religious leaders who kind of make them frame the Nazis as sinful, basically, right? They start to take on this view that it's not the right thing to do from a Christian perspective. It's sinful. So they get, it says, basically radicalized by that, right? Suddenly Mm -hmm. they're forming this strong opinion. They're radical Christians. Radical. (laughs) 
The other thing that happens to Hans and a number of other male students is they're in school for for medicine in some way, to be doctors or they're doing pre-med, that kind of thing. And at the time, any medical students had to serve compulsory time periods on the war front. Mm -hmm. So they like broke out time from your schooling specifically to say, you know, instead of a whole semester, you're going to go for a month to the war front. Yeah. Which made them pretty, you know, disillusioned with the Nazis and the German army in general because they're seeing all the terrible stuff that they're doing in real life like with their own eyes and having to to deal with it i actually think i saw that they so i know they did it for medical students but i think all service in the military was compulsory for people like yeah unless you had like a specific job you had to do some type of military yeah they all had to do something it was these medical students who were being sent to like the war front to actually aid soldiers yeah yeah okay um Mm -hmm. but everyone had to help in some way but so there's kind of this group of these medical students who are friends who get really disillusioned. There's no religious continuity, really. So even though Hans and Sophie start with these really religious principles, mm-hmm. um, they kind of form this group of like-minded people who some are Catholic, some are Lutheran, some are, I'm sure, different denominations of Christianity, who all kind of start meeting in secret and talking about how they think this is all pretty messed up. So they become the the White Rose. There's no formal, like, solid explanation for why they're called the White Rose. Right. Hans ultimately gave multiple explanations. So we mm-hmm. don't really know which one's true. But it does kind of set the stage for they're all very pretentious. <laughs> Like, it's an intellectual group, right? Like, they're extremely pretentious college students who, like, just discovered what a poem is. So, like, I kind of got the – and I don't even mean this in a bad way. Again, like, there's – it's very weird and hard to joke about people who are, like – But, like, I kind of got the hipster vibe of, like – Do you know what I mean? Like, we're way smarter than everyone else. Oh, yeah. Definitely. They are, like, college students who think they are the smartest – like, the first people to learn something, right? I know that because I've been that in my life. Yes, um, me too. Me too. I, I just think about singing Rent in high school. Right. And, However, like, I was not fighting Nazis while I did it. So like they're right. Than so me. like exactly. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> but so most of the White Rose explanations are literary references. Um, so he suggested he might have chosen it, quote, while under the emotional influence of a 19th century poem. <laughs> oh, my know. God. I don't know if I've ever been under an emotional influence from a poem. I Although if either. you count songs, then. Fair. I've cried to many a Taylor Swift song. <laughs> Same. Um, but there was this poem called The White Rose that he really liked. So it could have come from there. Um, there was also a Cuban poet who wrote about a white rose. There's a German novel called The White Rose. So it's like a literary term that comes up multiple times. I want to know what does a white uh, a well, white rose symbolize? Well, oh, you got it. <laughs> so at the time, it was written in like textbooks and things like that. White rose was supposed to mean innocence and purity when compared to pure evil. Okay. Okay. Right. So it kind of means that but they don't think they named it for that meaning they named it after things that were using that meaning okay right got it it's funny Mm -hmm. though because it's not funny nothing's funny but (laughs) i'm a joke because white roses just make me think of president snow from the hunger games oh which is like totally appropriate yeah which is also the opposite though right his were like sinister yeah so that's no but actually i mean they were sinister but like if you think about it he thought that what they were doing was right yeah definitely so 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ooh, that's like oh. kind of spooky. I'm yeah. like here for it. I love I it. <laughs> uh, so in the summer of 1942, Hans and a guy named Alexander Schmorl, they start writing the first four of their famous leaflets. So what the White mm-hmm. Rose is really known for is a series of pamphlets that they publish. Yes. So this first one is, again, very like literary and kind of full of themselves. Like they quote extensively from like the Bible, Aristotle, Novalis, Schiller, like iconic poets of the German bourgeoisie. Like, yeah, it they, feels so douchey, but yeah, like, but they for very, good reason. And they very explicitly said like they were appealing to what they considered like the intelligent, intelligista, whatever of right. Germany, thinking yeah. that those people could be more easily convinced by the same arguments, right? If we can show mm-hmm. you literary and philosophy and all this stuff that backs us up, that made right. us realize how bad it is, maybe they will too. Like if we can show you authors whose books haven't been burned and have been revered yeah. by us, like maybe we'll kind of wake people up and be like, oh shit, this isn't very like German or whatever. Right. Like it is yeah. a purposeful strategy. Right. Right. Um, and so I wrote, so like they're pretentious, but they mean well. And so one quote from this first pamphlet is, quote, why do you allow these men who are in power to rob you step by step, openly and in secret, of one domain of your rights after another, until one day nothing, nothing at all will be left but a mechanized state system presided over by criminals and drunks? Is your spirit already so crushed by abuse that you forget it is your right or rather your moral duty to eliminate this system? So that's, yeah, so that's from their first pamphlet. They can read evaluating my entire life right now exactly you should be (laughs) yes (laughs) they get a hold of basically like a mini printing press as a group and so they copy a bunch of these pamphlets and start distributing Mm -hmm. them everywhere they're like taking trains to nearby cities they're leaving them in like bags on the street for people to find they have this, this big concentrated effort to distribute them as anonymous material so they don't sign them white rows or names or anything like that at first did you ever see the movie jojo rabbit yes okay i'm getting i mean obviously this is literally what this is basically but i'm i got those vibes a lot yeah i thought of that too talking about the like nazi youth organizations yes and just like lee i think of just her leaving these Mm -hmm. little slips of paper and things and places for people to find yep yeah. Damn, that was a good movie. It was, was a good movie. Is that ScarJo? Yeah, it was ScarJo. She was really fucking good in that. Yeah, she was. If you haven't seen that movie, everybody go see it. It's mm-hmm. oh, it's so good. It's probably on Amazon Prime. Yeah, it's somewhere. Um, so they do this first leaflet, and then a bunch of them, again, get sent to the war front. So there's kind of a break in their activity. Okay. But during that break in the fall, Sophie discovers that her brother is one of the authors of these pamphlets. So she realizes him and all his little medical student friends have been talking and plotting, and she insists that she join the group. Okay. So she becomes part of the group, and then a man named Will Graff joins, and by the end of the year, Kurt Huber joins, and these are some of kind of the main players. Yeah, I'll definitely bring up their trials and stuff, too. Oh, shit. Spoiler, they get caught. (laughs) Oops. (laughs) Um, So in January of 1943... Um, they're on their fifth leaflet. So throughout that like fall semester, they publish three more leaflets kind of similar to that first one mm-hmm. that are very like highbrow moral plea type things. Yeah. So the fifth leaflet they publish in January is called Appeal to All Germans. 
I'm not reading it in German. So it's called Appeal to All Germans. Dude, don't worry. I'm going to read everything I have in German and it's going to be awful. <laughs> and so this one, they actually made somewhere between six and 9,000 copies using their little hand-operated duplicating machine. Wow. So a, a lot for that format. That's dedication, man. There was no copy machines. I can't fucking right. imagine having to do that without a copy machine. Same. And so they distribute that over the course of basically a weekend, like the 27th to the 29th of January. Oh, my God. Um, They bring them to other cities. They drop them off there. And they also mail them from those cities so that they're postmarked there and not in Munich. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And at that point, they're realizing they want to reach more people. So they kind of drop some of the really like literary highbrow stuff, right? It's Mm -hmm. appeal to all Germans. They want to extend it a little bit. So again, they're using a strategy when they're being kind of pretentious in the first ones and then switching. So they actually start calling themselves the German resistance movement instead of the white rose on the writing. And the the writing itself becomes less intellectual and a little bit more easy to understand broadly. Mm -hmm. At that point, the students are convinced the war is already lost. And so that's kind of the argument they're making is give up and be humane, right? They're still saying everything happening is inhumane. Yeah. But on top of that, like, we didn't win. So what are you holding on to? Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. In January of 1943, too, there's a student riot that breaks out. At Munich University. So a Nazi um, is there making a speech, which is a Mm -hmm. thing that happened. And (laughs) is Is this all in an attempt to not say this guy's name? Yes. Yes. Gaulater? Gaulater. Gaulater, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I don't care about him also. (laughs) Like, he's a bad person. So whatever. But this a game, Nazi was there and he was speaking. This jabroni. Is... It was Germany in 1943. <laughs> exactly. Well, and then I was like, is that even a name or is that some kind of like term? I don't know. Whatever. Nazi right? is like, is that like a military rank they had? <laughs> Let's see. It is. It's a political official governing a district under Nazi rule. So that's not his name. It's his title. Oh, I hate that. Yeah. I kind of hoped it was his name. Same. But I... Yeah, he was like a some kind of district manager of the attorneys, of the attorneys <laughs> of the Nazis. Of the attorneys? Is that what you just Yeah, said? and I don't <laughs> I'm like, was the word attorney even on this Google page? No. So I don't know no. where district manager of the Nazis. Oh man. Um Do you put that on a resume? Like previous jobs include district manager of the Nazis? I don't like... think you get another job after that one. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Hopefully, anyway. Hopefully. Right. Unless you're, you're in, like, South Steven America. Miller. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> or that. Um, but in his speech, he basically is denouncing male students who don't serve in the army. Is like, what he's going on about. And mm-hmm. he peppers in some obscene comments about a bunch of female students as well. Just, like, of course. to top it off. Yes. Um, and so, obviously, this, like, makes the White Rose really mad and makes them want to do more. Um, And also just a general riot breaks out at the school, like from students who are upset about it. Um, After that, not long after that, they announced the defeat at Stalingrad, which prompts the White Rose Mm -hmm. to send out another pamphlet. Oh, Stalingrad. 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 Mm -hmm. I'm not smart. No, no, you're fine. 
I'm the district manager of Stalingrad. They basically, what they did is they just, once the communists took over in Russia, they basically yeah. just like took a bunch of cities and were like, Leningrad, just, Stalingrad. Yeah. I just, I wrote it. It wasn't copy and pasted and <laughs> I spelled it wrong. And so then I read it the way I spelled it. Well, I was in this weird place where so I was like, do I correct her? I'm like, no, I'm going to say Stalingrad no, later please, and I don't want to like. Yeah, please correct. It was literally, I messed up the A and the R and then I read my own writing like phonetically. It, and so my bad. It was red underlined too. I just didn't care. <laughs> no fucks were given. Nope. So they send out their sixth and final pamphlet. Um, this one, the tone was a little more patriotic, right? So they're kind of trying to rally like fellow Germans, we're losing and we need to like stick together. Um, so Kurt Huber authored that one and then Mm -hmm. Hans and Alexander kind of came in and, and helped with it, but it was headed fellow students and it said that the quote day of reckoning had come for quote, the most contemptible tyrant our people has ever endured. And it ends with basically sentiment, the dead of... Now I'm like, I don't know how to say it. <laughs> of it's Stalingrad. My friend Stalingrad. Stalingrad. Yeah, them. Um, <laughs> I have a meme. I have a Stalin... So I have a meme board in my classroom, which is just... It's called Remembering History. And it's all history-based memes. And it's like, there's this one that I have that's like a picture of Stalin. And it says Stalin. And then it says underneath Stalingrad and it's him with a graduation cap and it's like one of my favorite ones. That's a good way to remember it that I should stop saying guard because this one's spelled (laughs) right but now I have a complex about it. (laughs) Um, So they then in early February so it's funny I'm like on the 3rd 8th and 15th which are all a week apart so I assume we're weekends Mm. um, Alexander, Hans and Will, Willie Graf um, they get tin stencils and basically graffiti the school and a bunch mm. of other buildings with slogans like down with Hitler and freedom and things like that. Yeah. And the the distribution of the pamphlet and that are the last activities of the White Rose. So I will stop there um, and let you talk about why those were the last activities of the White Rose. You'll know yeah. we're in 1943, so it's not for the reason you would like to think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm about but to be like real real depressing yeah the next several pages um so like sarah said on february 18th 1943 around 11 a.m the shoals actually had brought a suitcase full of leaflets to the university main building and they quickly dropped stacks of copies in the empty corridors for students to find when they left the lecture rooms Um, and then they quickly left obviously before the lectures had ended so as they did they noticed that there were some leftover copies in the suitcase and they decided to distribute them. And Sophie flung the last remaining leaflets from the top floor down into the atrium. And I had to write this and I, you know, feel free to cancel me after this, but like I'm getting some very serious Regina George vibes (laughs) when she just like throws the fucking pages. Do you know what I'm saying? Of the burn book. And obviously this was way more important and it was not like bullying high school children. Uh, However, I do feel that it was um, uh, like, I don't know. It was the only image that I could get. Yeah. Like there was no nice way to say it. An impulsive like fuck it. Yeah, and you also didn't want to be caught with them on you because if somebody stopped and was like, yeah. oh, hey, what's in your bag? Like, you know, you're well, fucked. So, yeah. which is basically what actually ends up happening. So, mm-hmm. this random and spontaneous act by Sophie was actually observed by the university maintenance man named Jacob Schmid. 
Oh, guys, get ready for my German names. Like I have, Look, I was born I for this. So you're, I, <laughs> I am going to destroy these names. Either <sighs> they're going to be really good or they're going to be really bad. I don't know. I didn't take them out because I was like, you know what? This is the only funny part of this entire episode. So I'm going to yeah, go with we it. need some levity. Exactly. Uh, so Jacob Schmid confronted them as they left the building, and then he basically turned them into the secretary, Albert Scheithammer, which is guy. like. What a fucking name. Like, I literally wrote that because, yeah. like, Shaitama, like, it reminds me of shit hammer. Yeah, for sure. So, but also fuck both of them, so. Fuck them, yeah. So then both Schmid and Shaitammer took the siblings to the council or, yeah, the consul of the university, Ernst Heifner, who then turned them over to the Gestapo. So basically, it was like a chain reaction where he was yeah. like, hey, you kids, get over here. And he, like, grabbed them and he, like, brought them to... The different levels. Fun, disgusting fact about Jacob Schmidt, he received a reward of 3,000 Reichsmarks uh, for arresting the siblings. Okay. And he was also promoted from worker to employee. And I literally don't know what the fuck that I means. Feel like, like it's a university, right? So I feel like maybe like yeah. staff to faculty. Oh, that's probably it. Yeah, that's probably it. Because, I mean, he was a maintenance guy. So he probably right. was like, you're head maintenance guy or something. Yeah, yeah, or like you get maintenance tenure or something. Right, right. Yeah. So then this piece of shit was also cheered on by hundreds of students who honored him uh, at a thank you ceremony that was organized by the University of Munich. Uh, and his response to all of them thanking him was, shocker, a Nazi salute. So this Cute. guy was a human piece of garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So when the two were arrested... Um, and taken by the Gestapo, Hans and Sophie I'm talking about, um, Hans had on him a draft of a seventh pamphlet that was being written by another member of the organization uh, named Christoph Probst. And Hans actually did try to destroy the draft of the leaflet by tearing it up and trying to swallow it. But the Gestapo were able to take it from him and recover enough of it to match the handwriting with other writings from Probst, who I guess had done a lot of work for the White Rose organization just in general. Mm-hmm. And when they searched Hans's apartment, they found like all the shit that they basically needed. So Sophie, on the other hand, before I, and I don't know how she did this, but she was somehow able to get rid of the incriminating evidence before being taken into the custody of the Gestapo. And that basically, you know, confirms my belief. Like I wrote that women can get away with crimes much better than men oh, can. for sure. Just hands down. Um, yep. And... <laughs> So she was taken into custody by them, and the main interrogator for both the Scholl siblings was this man named Robert Moore. And he basically thought Sophie was innocent at first because she was just like giving him nothing. And he was like, maybe she's just like a stupid girl and like got caught up in something that her brother you know was doing and she had no actual responsibility or maybe she had no knowledge of it she like definitely was convincing him that she wasn't super involved just her lady brain yes like her lady brain can't think of anything in this case fine i have a lady brain right right but what's interesting is once her brother hans confessed she actually assumed full responsibility in attempt to protect him and other members of the white rose so she's like she could probably have her own badass babes episode for sure because she's mm-hmm. like she doesn't give a fuck, which is awesome. So here's a fun fact that's not fun. Um, in a 1951 report to Robert Scholl, uh, Sophie's father, Moore actually claimed that he had tried to save her life by leading her to testify against her brother to say that she was under his influence and that they had different opinions on politics and she had no idea what she was doing. Um, but Sophie essentially was just like, nope, fuck you. Like, I know exactly what I'm doing, okay. uh, which is super cool. Right. Uh, so, yeah, this is going to just get continuously worse. So mm-hmm. 
Um, Probst has also been arrested at this point once they discover he's like been behind a lot of the writings with the um, White Rose. And and I kind of got the vibe that they had been sort of sniffing out this activity for a while and they just hadn't really been able to get any kind of, you know, like leads on it. And so on February 22nd, 1943, the um, siblings Hans and Sophie and Probst were expected to stand trial before the Nazi People's Court or the Volksgerichtshof. Great show. So, yes, I literally thought the same thing. I was like, oh, wait, isn't this a TV show? Yeah, I was my like, grandparents watch like those court TV shows all day. Yes. So I'm very familiar with the People's Court. Yes. So I actually did a little bit of more like extra research into this because I thought it was so interesting. But this was basically a court that was notorious for totally unfair political trials. And basically it just ended with death sentences and there was no actual like trial. It was just kind of like, you know, here's your quote unquote court appointed defense attorney who's like also a Nazi and is like not going to do anything. You know what I mean? Like America today if you're not white. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I would say, though, there was no guise of trying to help them. Right. They didn't even pretend. (laughs) Right. Like, at at least least maybe in American court systems, we pretend like people give a shit. Yeah. But, you know. Uh, So this is basically exactly what happened. So the Volksgerichtshof was um, headed by a man named Roland uh, Freisler, who was the head judge of the court who'd actually been sent down from Berlin spe- Berlin specifically for this trial and i was reading one of um one of the books like they had a couple like sections online and this author named Richard Hanser wrote this like really nice summary of what it was like being in this court so he basically says quote no witnesses were called since the defendants had admitted everything. The proceedings consisted almost entirely of Roland Freisler's denunciation and abuse, punctuated from time to time by half-hearted offerings from the court-appointed defense attorneys, one of whom summed up his case with the observation, I can only say fiat justitia, let justice be done, by which he meant let the accused get what they deserve, quote. Cool defense attorney. Yes. So, like, again, that's literally exactly what I mean. And Freisler will come up a couple times, too. He'll actually pretty much be the judge for most of the White Rose Court cases. What's really cool is um, the records that they have of the trial show that all three defendants were incredibly courageous, brave, and pretty much silent throughout the entire proceedings. Like, they uh, were under insane interrogation and scrutiny and were being screamed at and were basically being forced to, like, give up other names. And they just blatantly refused. Um, Sophie especially was like mega badass so she was like basically being intimidated by freisler during like throughout the whole trial and she's quoted as saying things like quote somebody after all had to make a start what we wrote and said is also believed by many others they just don't dare to express themselves as we did and she also says things like quote you know as well as we do that the war is lost why are you so cowardly that you won't admit it so like yes. yeah seriously she just like didn't give a shit which just yep. i thought i mean was so like cool. you're gonna die anyway at that yeah. point, you know you're going to get killed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she, you know, I think I think what probably set her off was the fact that she was, like, assumed to have no role in it because she was right. a girl, you know? Yeah. Um, so in the middle of the trial, Robert and Magdalene Scholl, the parents of Hans and Sophie, attempted to enter the courtroom but were stopped. And when they explained that they were the accused parents, the guard replied, well, you should have brought them up better. Which is like, fuck that. Uh, Because they did. They were, you know, anti-Nazi children. So that's good. 
Um, yeah, they did a good job. Right. Uh, and then Robert tried to force his way into the courtroom, but he was apprehended and removed. And as he was being removed, he shouted, one day there will be another kind of justice. One day they will go down in history. So that like gave me chills. One and day they'll really be sad. on a podcast. One d- so I'm really glad you said that because my third instinct was to say, one day they'll be on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I will say, though, I knew like about Sophie before we did this vaguely because there's like memes that go around which again is like a silly way but there's a meme that always goes around Facebook that's a picture of her and about her and so I was familiar with her oh that's cool see I don't I never know like I don't know for some reason I never see those things I see the same old history memes that I I've seen for years but I never see like new ones yeah I see it's just like a picture of her and it says you know it's a quote of hers and it basically says here it is. Thinking of Sophie Scholl, who was executed on this day in 1943 for leading student resistance against Hitler. She was 21. And then it has her last words. Oh, wow. What were her last words? How can we expect righteousness to prevail when there's hardly anyone willing to give himself up individually to a righteous cause? Such a fine sunny day and I have to go. But what does my death matter if through us thousands of people are awakened and stirred to action? Okay, that's depressing. Uh-huh. <laughs> I thought it was gonna be. I don't know what I'll. I know Hans's, Hans's last words. Yeah. So I'll. Hans's are not as poetic. Uh, no, Hans basically just yells like "Viva la Revolution." Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Only I'm gonna yell it in German. Of so. course. Um. So the three Hans, Sophie, and their friend Christoph Probst were brought back to Stadelheim prison, and the guards allowed the siblings to have a final visit with their parents and pretty much all witness accounts of their final goodbyes with their parents said that both Hans and Sophie were very steady and very strong, not particularly stoic, but like basically the, the epitome of like putting on a brave face so that neither one were seen or heard like being devastated. Um, And actually it wasn't reported that either one of them shed any type of tear until their parents had left. And it was, it's just like, uh, there was like a whole section on it. And I was like, I don't think I have the mental fortitude to get through it. So uh, Christoph Probst, on the other hand, did not have any family to visit him. That was because his wife had just had their third child and neither she nor any members of his family had any idea that he was even on trial or sentenced to death, Damn. which is like I wrote. That's like the most fucked up part of the story for yeah. me, only because I can't imagine having no idea that your husband is now going to be executed. And like you just gave birth in the 1940s Germany. Like, oh, my God. No. Um, so Probst, who was always noted as being a man who didn't have any specific commitment to a certain faith, was granted admittance on the eve of his death into the Catholic Church. So basically, like, they have something called the Articulo Mortis or, like, point of death. And basically, the church will be like, oh, you go and die? Okay, we gonna let you in. Like, that's pretty much, like, the vibe of, like, okay, we know that you're going to die and you want to make sure you, like, go to heaven. So we'll, like, give you last minute access <laughs> to the Catholic Church so that you can... Okay you know die and go to heaven that's um, pretty sweet so you can just like do whatever you want your whole life and then be like i think so no i think it's also i do think it's like circumstantial like i don't sh- think fair you know fair. i don't think you could like do really shitty stuff and then they'd be like oh last minute all right that's cool okay but, like fair. in his case um probes was quoted as saying now my death will be easy and joyful which is also kind of depressing mm-hmm. um all three of them were actually also granted a final visit with one another before okay. they were executed by the guillotine. Um, first went Sophie, 
then Kristoff, then Hans, who cried out immediately before his execution, Es liebe die Freiheit, or long live freedom, as the blade fell. Sophie was 21, Hans, and I believe Kristoff were both 24. Which also, boyfriend, you're having your third child right? at 24 I had as a medical student? I thought for a second. So I mixed up in my head Kristoff, Propes, and Kurt Huber. Kurt mm-hmm. Huber was the professor who was involved. And right, I right. mixed them up. So I was like, well, he's a professor. He has three kids. And then I was like, wait a second. I mixed them up. Yeah. Yeah. So this this jabroni had three three fucking kids at 24. Absolutely not. Bless. I don't understand. But so obviously, I should... <laughs> sorry, in my next note, it says Wikigraph, but it's supposed to be Willygraph. <laughs> Good. Um, so the other trials that follow um, are pretty quick in succession with the one uh in february of 1943 for the other trials did they get their names from interrogating so i think so 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 here's what i'm what i've understood neither sophie nor hans nor christoph i don't think actually had any real like moment where they gave everything up right um I couldn't find how they got all of this information. I think it might have just been, honestly, it probably was a combination of, like, who do they normally hang out with, with, Mm -hmm. like, just, you know, like, elimination. And also, like, it didn't fucking matter. If you were kind of involved, it it could be just, all right, we're gathering everybody up. Right. Um, So... Willy Graf had also been arrested on February 18th, and in his interrogations, uh, he was able to successfully cover for other members of the group. And what's crazy is he was interrogated until October of that year. So everyone else had been, like, pretty much tried and executed or arrested and put into prison, like, pretty quickly. This guy was literally fucking tortured and interrogated from, like, February of October, and he gave up nothing, which I thought was super interesting. Yeah. Um, on February 24th, just two days after the Shoals and Probes were executed, Alexander Schmorel, uh, who you mentioned earlier, had returned to Munich after a failed attempt to travel to Switzerland and kind of spread the word. Somebody recognized him and called him out and they were like, you're Alexander Schmorel. And he was like, what? Um, and then he was arrested by the Gestapo Oops. as well. Right. Kurt Huber soon followed afterward, and he was taken into custody on February 26th. And so the second White Rose trial took place on April 19th, 1943. So in this trial, here we go. This is my moment to shine. Hi, I'm excited. On trial were Hans Herzl, Suzanne Herzl, Franz Joseph Mueller, Heinrich Guter, Eugene Griminger, Otto Eicher, Theodore Hacker, Willie Graf, Annalise Graf, Heinrich Bollinger, Helmut Bauer, and Falk Harnick. Helmut. As well as, I know, I saw Helmut and I was like, oh, fuck, that's such a great name. I'm naming my kid Helmut. Um, <laughs> let's see. Trout LaFrenz, Gisela Schertling, and Katharina. Oh, <laughs> I was so close. Um, <laughs> Shudikov? Shudikov. Yeah. I'm going with that. I'm so uncultured that literally you saying things that sound German, I'm just like, oh, it's like Spring Awakening because that's my apparently German reference. So, like, I'm so glad you said that because I also (laughs) got weird Spring Awakening vibes when I was doing some of this research and I was listening to you talk about how they were, like, intellectuals. Yeah. Like, that was just the vibe. It was a a Melchior situation. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The whole thing is a Melchior situation. Mm -hmm. Except Mm -hmm. sex, not Nazis. Right. Right, right. Well, that was like the 1800s, right? Late 1800s, early 1900s. Yeah, Spring Awakening was first. Okay. It was like before yeah, that's this. What I um, yeah. 
but yeah, also like I'm very cultured that I hear something that sounds vaguely German and I'm like, oh, Spring Awakening. Well, you know what it is? Like I Eric's last name is Werner. I think I've said this before, but like mm-hmm. I always pronounce it with a V just to like screw with people. I'm like Werner. Yeah. Like it just yeah. sounds so much more intense. And he, it's actually Austrian, but like they're so closely Same related vibe. with German. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so in that trial, Graf Huber and Schmorl were sentenced to death, while 11 others were sentenced to prison, and Falk Harnick was acquitted of the accusations, which I thought was interesting. Hmm. Uh, Schmorl and Huber were executed on July 13th, 1943, so uh, much later than just like what they did with the Shoals, which yeah. was like, okay, you're guilty, we're killing you today. Right. Um, and Which might Willie- be better been like sitting there for weeks waiting to die i know i kind of thought the same thing like to just be like okay let's just get this over with like what am i gonna do sit in prison and hope that it's gonna change when i know it's not like so willie graf was finally executed on october 12th 1943 after like i said his prolonged interrogation um Hans Conrad Lepelt was executed on January 29th, 1945. He had been sent down from Hamburg University in 1940 because of his Jewish ancestry. So he was basically kicked out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he copied and further distributed the White Rose pamphlets together with his girlfriend, Marie-Louise Jean. Jean? I don't know. I think I said that right. Yeah. Jean. Uh, and then the pamphlets were now entitled And Their Spirit Lives On. So he kind of continued the legacy. And then he was captured and executed a couple years later. Okay. The third White Rose trial was scheduled for April 20th, 1943, which was also Hitler's birthday and therefore a public holiday in Nazi Germany, which just is the grossest thing I think I've ever said. It is, because, like, anyone whose birthday is a public holiday here is dead. Right, Right? yes. Like, we do that, Mm -hmm. but it's Martin Luther King, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, like, Mm -hmm. dead people. And, like, don't get me wrong, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln were, like, problematic AF, but there's also, like... But something less. But at least they didn't make it a holiday. <laughs> right. I think that's what's gross. It's not the fact that Hitler had a national holiday for his birthday. It's the fact that he was like, it's my right. birthday. Like, <laughs> Yeah, because imagine if Biden was like, ah, uh, so everyone gets <laughs> yes. the day off now. Like, that's not cute. Which, like, to be fair, I'd be like, okay. I mean, I'll take a me. day off. I'll take a day off, but like, I don't want it to be okay, because of your birthday. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so... It was scheduled for the 20th, uh, which was a public holiday. But Judge Freisler, same guy who had sentenced everybody else and issued death sentences and whatever. Oh, wait, I um, forgot to add um, 420. Nice. Oh, it is 420. Oh, my God. Wait, I feel like I knew that. And I feel like a student has said exactly I'm sure they that have. to me. Where I've been like, yep, so he's April 20th. And I, I'm like 99.9% positive yeah, I'm, a kid has I'd gone. I'd be shocked oh, if a high school student has not said that. I just wish I could remember if it was if I'm making that up. I just feel like it's very real. It feels real to me. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so Freisler had intended to issue death sentences against Wilhelm Geyer, Harold Dorn, Joseph uh, Song Songhen Songhen, and Manfred Eichmeier, but he didn't want to issue too many death sentences in a single trial, and he therefore decided to postpone his judgment against those four until the next day. Very respectable. Right. Oh, that's too many people to kill in one day. And it's Hitler's birthday. We'll wait till tomorrow. Right. So what's weird is the evidence actually against all of those people was lost, like, almost overnight. And the trial didn't actually end up taking place until July 13th of 1943. That was in the trial. That was a trial where Gisela Schertling, who had betrayed most of her friends and even fringe members of the organization, like Gerhard Fuhler, 
ended up changing her mind. So I think when you asked me earlier, like where mm-hmm. they got those names from, Somewhere I'm pretty her. sure it was Gisela who was like fucking singing like a bird. Mm, um, which like, uh, I don't want to say I don't blame her. No, be- but like, you know what I'm saying? It yeah. just feels like, uh, I don't know. There's just so much, there's so much that goes into it. And I think like, it's hard to judge people i mean after living through historical events <laughs> like the yeah. last year we have been like would i have been brave enough to be like you know tortured and not given up names like i right. hope so but i don't know so she spent oh just kidding so she actually ended up changing her mind and she recanted all of her testimony which made the lack of evidence like really like too much for them to actually prosecute and so people were acquitted over that uh because freisler wasn't presiding over this third trial i think because of the delay and so so the judge was like right well the judge was like i don't have any evidence like if she's recanting all this shit technically we have to honor that so yeah after her acquittal on april 19th uh trout lafrenz was placed under arrest again and she spent the last year of the war in prison Trials were continuously postponed and moved to different locations because of Allied air raids, and her trial was finally set for April 1945, after which she probably would have been executed, but three days before the trial, the Allies liberated the town where she was being held prisoner, which ended up saving her life, which is pretty fucking cool. Yeah. So the other thing that I thought was interesting was just like reactions, research, and just the commemoration of these um, folks. So the defeat at Stalingrad, like you mentioned, was like a huge blow to German offensive, to the German offensive line, and the White Rose members had really hoped that this would somewhat incite more German opposition against the Nazis and against the war effort overall. But this actually wasn't the case. And instead, Nazi propaganda used the defeat in Stalingrad to basically call on the German people to embrace a total war mentality instead. So ironically or depressingly, I don't know if depressingly is a word, but we'll just go with it. uh, The same day that Sophie, Hans, and Christoph were arrested was the exact same day that the Nazi propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels delivered his most famous speech called the Sportpalast speech, in which he openly declared the threat and danger that Nazi Germany was now facing and the critical need for civilian support, which was met with enthusiastic support from the people listening. So basically, like, Like he was able to turn it. Yeah, he was able to turn it on his head and be like, we need you Nazis more than ever. Right. Um, And I, I... I liked what you said earlier, too. Like, you mentioned, like, that they were kind of calling out for Germans. And I think that a lot of the White Rose was about reminding people that they were Germans first and Nazis second. Well, because I think of, like, the youth movement stuff that was about, like, cultural traditions and, like, back to this pristine time. And I feel like they were pulling on some of that of, like, what Germany is. What's interesting, too, is Germany actually hadn't been a unified nation until, like, the late 1800s. So, like, it was actually, like, a bunch of, like, Germanic states and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, let me see. Where am I? Okay, so shortly after the arrest of the Scholl siblings and Christoph Probst, newspapers published an all-points bulletin in search of Alexander Schmorl. And on February 22nd, 1943, the day of the trial and the executions, the students of Munich were assembled and officially protested against the traitors who came from within their ranks. Uh, The Gestapo and Nazi jurisdiction that documented this wrote down in their files that their view of the White Rose members were traitors and defeatists. 
The next day, the official newspaper of the Nazi party and other local newspapers in Munich briefly reported about the capture and execution of some, quote, degenerate rogues. But the network of friends and supporters proved to be too large. So the rumors about the White Rose couldn't actually be suppressed anymore by Nazi German officials. So they wanted to kind of keep it on the DL. But there were just too many people who were involved in the organization, Mm -hmm. like in some minor or major way. And so word continued to spread. Um, On June 27th of that same year, the German author and Nobel Prize winner Thomas Mann in his monthly anti-Nazi broadcasts by the BBC called Deutsch Horror (laughs) or German audience highly praised the White Rose's member, uh, the White Rose member's courage um, and continued people to seek information out from them. Uh, And it started to actually show up in international media as well. So on April 18th of 1943, the New York Times mentioned the organization uh, that was going on in Munich. And they also published articles on the first White Rose trials on March 29th and April 25th. Uh, they didn't actually record all of the correct information about the resistance or the trials or the execution. <laughs> but they did their best. They did their best. Uh, and they were the first to acknowledge the White Rose in the United States press. Okay. The text of the sixth leaflet of the White Rose was smuggled out of Germany through Scandinavia and into the UK by a German lawyer and member of another resistance organization that was called the Chrysaw Circle. And his that was uh, this guy's name was also Helmut. Yes. <laughs> I think. Right. Hel- oh, Helmuth. Helmuth James Helmuth. Graf That's von His Volke. name is Hellmouth. That's different. Hellmouth. Yeah. Yes. Um, and in July of the same year, copies were dropped over Germany by Allied planes, retitled The Manifesto of the Students of Munich, which is really cool. Yeah. I, I think it's probably awesome to see like a plane just like opening up and dropping pamphlets and shit and being like, what is this? Oh, Nazis are bad. Like, yeah. So I don't um, know. I feel like that cl- <laughs> close after a war, I'd be like, what is falling from the sky? Should I touch this? <laughs> By that close after a war, I mean today, if that happened, I'd be like, we are under attack and I gotta go. (laughs) That's that's totally fair. Unfortunately, during this time period, it didn't actually seem like these attempts at resistance provoked any active opposition against the Nazi regime that we could see within the German population. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is like, I guess, at a point understandable, too, because it's you know, you're reaching a point in the war where like shit's starting to not go great. And, you know, people probably don't want to realize that they have allowed this piece of garbage dictator to control right. them for 10 years. And now their husbands and brothers and sons are dead. Like, yeah. So what's cool is um, people knew that the White Rose existed, but for a really long time, the primary sources for historians to research the organization were super limited. Um, one of the only things that they had to work off of was Inga Scholl's co- uh, commemorative book published in 1952 called The White Rose. So she was actually the oldest of the Scholl siblings. Okay. Um, they also were able to work off of limited copies of the letters and diaries of Sophie and Hans and Willy Graf um, and some copies of the pamphlets themselves. This was a really fucking interesting, too. So more information actually ended up coming out in the early 1990s with the ending of communism and the German Democratic Republic, a.k.a. East Germany. Mm -hmm. So the interrogation protocols and other documents that were gathered by the Gestapo and Nazi authorities were finally publicly available. So the reason for this is because the interrogation protocols that were part of the people's court that I mentioned, mm-hmm. all of those documents were confiscated by the Soviets and then brought to Moscow where they were kept totally secret in a special archive. So like you didn't have any access to them. Right. Once the German Democratic Republic collapsed, 
or it was founded, sorry, the major part of the Nazi documents were handed over to them and were distributed between the Central Archive of the Socialist Unity Party and the Archive of the Ministry for State Security. So, like, they slowly started to, like, filter them out. And then once Germany reunified, all of the documents were transferred to the Federal Archive of Germany in Berlin and finally published for people to see. Um, And I will say that if there's one thing that you'll notice when you go if you ever go to Germany is that they have no fucking qualms about exposing this truth to like people. Um, Like, and I, it's interesting when I was there, I noticed that there's like a really significant lack of like German flags everywhere. Mm -hmm. Like in the cities, like you just don't see it. And I remember like one of my kids pointed it out on the tour that I was on and the tour guide's like, well, if you think about it, the last time the Germans showed a lot of pride, we didn't have a very good outcome or reason for it. Yeah. So you know, every museum that you could possibly go to in some capacity talks about the ugly, disgusting shit that the Nazis did, which I think is really honorable because that's how you teach kids about this kind of shit and mm-hmm. you therefore prevent it, hopefully. Uh, so basic commemoration of the Shoals and the White Rose. So once Nazi Germany fell, the White Rose came to represent opposition to tyranny in the German psyche and was acknowledged and admired for acting without interest in personal power or self-promotion. Uh, so actually really similar to what you said as Sophie's quote, that like mm-hmm. people need to start acting not for themselves, but just for like the greater good. Yeah. Uh, on February 5th, 2012, Alexander Schmorl, who was born in Russia, was canonized as a new martyr by the Orthodox Church, Aww. which is really cool. The square where the Central Hall of Munich University is located has been named the Geischwister Scholl Platz after Hans and Sophie Scholl, and the square opposite to it is the Professor Huber Platz. In front of the university are two large fountains, one on either side of the Ludwigstraub, which I think is like... I don't know what the fuck that is. I'm not even going to look it up. Uh, (laughs) The fountain in front of the university is dedicated to Hans and Sophie. The other one across the street is dedicated to Professor Huber. Uh, Many schools, streets, and other places across Germany are named in memory of the members of the White Rose. There's also a Paris high school named after the White Rose and a public park that pays homage to Hans and Sophie Scholl. In addition to that, you can get a leading literary prize in Germany that's called the Geischwister Scholl Prize. Uh, or the Scholl Siblings Prize. And the last fact I'd like to leave everybody on is the asteroid 7571, Vice Ross, is named after the group. <laughs> Good. So if you ever think that your actions aren't going to be important, just remember you could have a fucking asteroid named after that you. That is pretty cool. And if that doesn't inspire people, I don't know what is going yeah. to. Then I'm so, done. That's it. That's all I got. Um, so that's the White Rose, people. A uh, little depressing, uh, super informative. Yeah. But um, hopefully y'all learn something and yeah. I don't know. Like a little inspiring, maybe. You want to go change the world or some shit? Yeah. I don't know. So, yeah. Cool. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to What the History. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WTHistoryPod. If you'd like to email us, you can do that at WTHistoryPodcast at gmail.com, and we'd love to hear feedback or episode ideas or anything else you have to say. You can support us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash WTHistoryPodcast and get exclusive access to even more nerdy stuff. 
Don't forget to tune in every Thursday when new episodes are released, and we will see you next time.